Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this week we are going to be talking about what it takes to build a better gun culture, a gun culture that keeps people safe instead of not safe. And with me to talk about that, I'm going to have on a uh, an instructor named Ellie Picard, and I think that you all will get a lot out of hearing what she has to say. But first... This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show in the network. I'm going to make those pompous academics regret kicking out such a genius. Deciding to build my lab and do my research. The Time Talks Podcast. Have you ever stared at a 500-page book and wish you could just talk to the author about their ideas instead? If so, the Time Talks podcast, part of the Channel Zero Network, is for you, where we discuss history, politics, music, and art with an anti-authoritarian and anarchist perspective. The Time Talks podcast. What's this light? I feel different. The Time Talks podcast. Okay, if you could introduce yourself with your your name, your pronouns, and then kind of uh, your background with the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, for sure. Um, My name is Ellie Picard, and uh, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, Currently living in Charlottesville, Virginia, originally from the District of Columbia. And um, I've been interested in firearms for most of my life. I've only been actively shooting and and training with guns for the last uh, three or four years. I became a certified handgun instructor a few months ago, and I work with another trans instructor here in Virginia. We have a company called Armed Trans Women, and we offer classes not just for trans folks, but for literally anyone who signs up. But we particularly enjoy and emphasize the importance of teaching queer folks, uh, people of color, other marginalized people, because we're the ones who really need to know how to defend ourselves and our communities and our families uh, because no one else is going to. And I'm also a, uh, a doctoral candidate, a researcher in political science, and my research focuses on radical queer militancy and so studying and paying attention to uh, radical gun culture, queer gun culture has been a big part of my research life as well as my personal life. So I'm not just actively personally involved in these things. It's something that I dedicate a lot of intellectual, you know, resources to, to thinking through and, and dealing with as well. Yeah. I get really excited when I have on a guest and I didn't even realize they're even more qualified than I originally <laughs> thought. I don't know qualified, but whatever. <laughs> I didn't know about the, the, the academic work. Well, the main thing that I want to talk to you about, yeah, is this idea of building a, a better gun culture. But before we get into that, do you want to Talk a little bit about the the trainings that you do. Like, what does it mean? Are you teaching to a certification? Are you helping people get, you know, uh, concealed carry permits? Or is it more of like a self-defense class? Or what kind of work are you doing there? So most of what we do is we teach um, heavily, you know, modified versions of the NRA basic pistol course and the NRA uh, concealed carry course because that's what most states require people to to take in order to get a concealed carry permit. Um, here in Virginia, folks need to take the basic pistol course, mm-hmm. and then they can can go and, and qualify for, for a license to carry. Um, so we do that. We also are uh, certified to qualify people for, for Maryland carry permits. And so that's most of what we do is basic pistol classes and CCW classes. We also do some one-on-one instruction that can range from sort of basic to more advanced defensive shooting. And if anyone listening has has sort of taken one of these basic NRA courses, uh, they are full of a lot of stuff that that is oriented toward the NRA's ideology and and projects. So obviously, we've sort of cut out a lot of that Mm -hmm. stuff. We emphasize uh, why self-defense and and why gun ownership uh, is potentially so important for marginalized people. And why we are sort why it's harder for us to engage with both firearms culture and the sort of infrastructure around learning how to to use and and acquire guns and all of the other ways that sort of traditional and well-established uh, firearms training leave a lot of people out or or sort of perpetuate a lot of the issues 
that exist in society. A lot of the sort of ingrained racism and, and sexism and, and other sort of things that are that are baked into our a lot of our sort of firearms infrastructure and commerce in this country. Yeah. What are some of the things that you end up kind of taking away from the NRA's version? Like what are some of the things that are in the NRA's training that are a little bit more ideologically focused? A lot of their basic slide deck that they give instructors is, um, it's just, it's sort of steeped in this second amendment worship and basic sort of, you know, reverence for America and for our rights and freedoms uh, of gun ownership uh, and for the political aspect of gun ownership as the NRA understands it, which is essentially, you know, protecting mm-hmm. the rights of people, predominantly white men, because that's the majority of their membership, to own guns. Uh, and we take a lot of that inflected language out, but we also take a lot of their, you know, they're also just, the NRA materials aren't very good at teaching what they're supposed to teach in some ways. They uh, are very clunky. They haven't been edited in a long time. They have a lot of extraneous material in there. The way that they phrase and talk about the rules of handgun safety is very different from the ways that we often talk about it in other gun communities uh, online. So we sort of adjust that to make it more accessible and, and more consistent with uh, the, what we're used to saying and thinking about when it comes to gun safety. And we've also actually changed, uh, taken out a lot of the actual like practical and technical stuff that's in the NRA instruction uh, materials, like the stances for handgun shooting that they teach, which are pretty outdated and, and in our opinion, not as effective or, or preferable as as uh, as other stances and and styles. So we teach a, our own sort of version of, of what we call a natural fighting stance rather than the NRA is approved like isosceles stance. So things like that, ranging from, from practical aspects to that sort of political inflection. And we do, I mean, we certainly replace some of that with our own ideological inflections in our teaching mm-hmm. and emphasize the fact that not just American society, but also gun control laws and gun control efforts are often harmful to to marginalized populations and, and to to folks like us and the people who are trying to train and arm and you know the ways that this country has chosen to restrict access to guns as well as the way that it promotes access to guns and sort of promotes the prolifer- proliferation of guns these are all things that end up being harmful to minorities and marginalized people and we sort of try to emphasize that and highlight that yeah i, I also make a point of doing things that I don't, that are not in the NRA trainings, like talking about mental health and the importance of, you know, what do we do with all of these guns that we're encouraging you to buy and carry if we're suicidal, Mm -hmm. if we have people in our homes who can't be sort of trusted or shouldn't be allowed to, or able to access guns, stuff like that, that that's often, you know, stigmatized or, or just ignored in other areas of gun discourse or things that we try to focus on and normalize and, and bring into the conversation as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess to start out, then why carry? Why is it worth, you know, as you pointed out, we have this like massive proliferation of guns in our our society, right? What is it? And the answer is sort of self-evident in some ways, but I'd love to hear, I'd love to talk about it. Why push for more people being armed and why push for specifically trans women to be armed or other marginalized folks? Mm -hmm. So, First, I mean, if we just look at the distribution of guns in this country, we have more firearms than humans in the United States currently, but they are overwhelmingly concentrated in certain among certain demographics. White men, conservative white men, still make up a, a majority of gun owners. That's starting to change, but it's but not not quickly. Um, we've seen surges in the last mm-hmm. few years of both people of color, women, queer folks, and liberals, uh, leftists buying guns at increasing rates. But that doesn't mean that, you know, white conservative men have stopped buying guns and we're not going to sort of catch up to them. And so, so the, mm-hmm. so I guess like that's the first part of my answer is we, a lot of the, the firepower in this country is concentrated in what, in my perspective, is sort of dangerous hands. And in order to counteract that, it makes sense to, arm the folks who are generally disadvantaged by conservative white male society. 
and the other thing is that you know we see that marginalized communities, queer communities, trans people, black people in this country are overwhelming are are the targets of violence more often than white folks, uh, statistically like proportionally, mm-hmm. and yet less likely to be able to defend themselves with firearms, less likely to carry and and be trained on how to use them. So there's that sort of aspect of just sort of one can, I guess, think of that as trying to level the playing field, but more, I I think it's not just about leveling the playing field from my perspective. I also kind of have a, um, a deterrence mindset here on a larger scale than the personal, by which I mean Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's not just about, you know, broadcasting the fact that I, as an individual trans femme, am able to defend myself and, and own a gun, but trying to, I guess, or, or, or I guess I, I sort of would like to see the day where, um, where folks assume that if they see a trans femme walking down the street, there's a fairly good chance that she is armed and she would, you know, she'll use her gun to defend herself if you fuck with her. Um, the more that that kind of idea becomes ingrained, um, you know, the less, the more chance there is of sort of preemptive deterrence of, of violence against marginalized people. That's, I guess, the hope anyway. So yeah, I, I would like... Yeah, like becoming spiky. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I would like people to be afraid of me. I honestly would. I'm not a very scary yeah. person, but I do things to make myself more intimidating in the street, and I do things to make myself less desirable or appealing to normies and cis folks. And, uh, and <laughs> that, you know, arming queers and, and arming other marginalized people is, is part of that sort of broadcasting or contributing to this broader understanding that, oh yeah, you, you can't actually just fuck with those people. They're not soft targets and you're likely to get hurt if you try. Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, the main reason that I carry or when I carry is, is yeah, out of like, well, I mean, self-defense and I carry when I'm more concerned about my personal safety, but you know, I like this idea of like being spiky or being known to be spiky, right? Like, Oh, if you fuck with people, then it might go really badly. Yeah. Um, but the thing that you were talking about earlier about, okay, kind of the leveling the playing field argument, it is a, it is a different argument than the primary liberal argument, um, in which, which has some validity from a, a, a higher level, but it's like, um, hmm counteracting by arming we're counteracting a right-wing threat by arming ourselves rather than trying to disarm the population Mm -hmm. and it seems like if you were a dictator and wanted everyone to be safe like when guns are not in the equation people are generally safer i believe that statistics sort of bear this out as Mm -hmm. as at least as, as far as i've seen and so in some ways arguing that well they're armed so i should be too is is escalatory, right? It is is more likely to put ourselves in a position of conflict. And yet it still, to me, feels like the appropriate approach to our current context. Mm-hmm. It feels like, I mean, one, we, we can't disarm them. Right. Uh, the, the we is not in power. Um, and even if it was in power, then you're just creating the systems by which people can make that kind of decision for other people. And that always goes very badly. Well, actually not even one. That's just my main point, right? Yeah. Is that like... No, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's sort of a matter of, of basic physics. We can't make all the guns in this country disappear. We can't unarm the folks that I see as, as primarily dangerous to us. That's not possible. So, yeah. and you're right. In doing so, we sort of hand more power to people who we also, also are likely to do us harm. Um, but, so I think, you know... Yeah, we could potentially see it as escalatory, but absent that escalation, you're not eliminating the potential for conflict. You're eliminating the potential for us to win the conflict. And I guess like, that's, you know, the other part of that 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 I didn't really mention before is, you know, there is a self, there's a a significant self-defense aspect to why I carry as, as an individual, but there's more of a community defense or collective defense aspect to it. Honestly, Mm -hmm. um, I am, if I'm just out by myself running errands and stuff, I'm 
nine times out of 10, not going to have a pistol on me, honestly. I have other things. I'm a knife slut and I've got all sorts of other weapons, but <laughs> I don't always carry a gun. When I do almost certainly carry a gun is when I know I'm going to be around other queer people with other queer people in public. And I know that I won't be prohibited from it because that's, you know, we're more, we're often, you know, I'm not going to say we're more often targeted in groups than individually. That's not true, but that's where I really want that deterrent message to be clear is that, you know, queers collectively are likely to be armed, not just me as an individual person. Um, So it's being able to and prepared to defend our community, not just to defend my person and to defend political existence, not just sort of physical existence um, that I see as particularly important. Yeah. Okay. So if this is, this is my logical thinking coming into this and part of why I wanted to have you on is if we are choosing to overall arm ourselves, right. And overall try and create a, a spiky culture or position, a culture in which like, if large-scale conflict or even small-scale conflict happens, we're capable of winning. If we choose to do that, it seems like there's a lot of traps that we could fall into. Mm. That Because the, some of the problems with gun culture are not just the problems of right-wing gun culture. Because I do believe that there is a sort of center gun culture, an apolitical gun culture in this country as well. It's not as large, maybe. But um, there are a lot of dangers involved in in gun culture right and this is something that i think about a lot as someone who you know promotes the idea that certain people should choose to be armed if their mental health and their community situation you know makes that make sense how do we create a culture that doesn't fall into some of these traps or minimizes the risks that because there it seems like a risk management rather than risk elimination right mm-hmm. when you're introducing firearms into a situation there's no way to to make that completely safe but it seems like there's ways that we can stay safer while doing that and i'm wondering you kind of hinted at some of those things earlier and i'm wondering if you want to talk about those things yeah for sure uh, and there are a few different sort of i guess like scales we can think about that at but one thing that i see that that i think is very encouraging um to me is is that thus far, if we look at discourse within leftist gun culture, um, and you know, I can mm-hmm. get into this. You know, it's it is worth sort of figuring out or specifying like what the we is that we're talking here. But um, leftist gun culture is extremely queer. It turns out uh, already. We don't have to make that happen. It's just the way it's, mm-hmm. it's happened so far. And that sort of queer leftist gun culture ideas, discourse about safety is really prominent. And I'm not sure exactly why that came to be the case. I think partially it came to be the case in response to, or as sort of an, a, you know, a, a conscious way of differentiating this culture and, and these discourses from a lot of the ways that we see guns talked about uh, in right-wing gun culture and, and, um, maybe even in, in sort of the more centrist gun discourse, but very basic stuff like, you know, the the four universal rules of firearm safety are things that if you're in a, you know, a leftist gun forum online or somewhere, you're going to see this stuff constantly. Like it's overemphasized. Mm-hmm. It's constantly there. You can go ahead and emphasize them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, first of all, assume that every gun you encounter is loaded um, and or uh, some people prefer to to phrase that as make sure you know the condition of any gun you encounter and never, uh, never point a gun at anything or anybody that you're not willing to destroy. Always know your target and what's beyond it. And when you are shooting or holding a gun, keep your finger off the trigger unless you are on target and ready to shoot something. So this is sort of four basic rules uh, that we encounter every day that we're sort of interacting with with uh, radical gun cor- gun discourse or leftist or queer gun discourse. Mm-hmm. And what I see a lot of also is, you know, in these online spaces or real world spaces, just a lot of critique, whether it's just like sort of 
humorous and making fun of people or, or more seriously criticizing folks for dangerous practices for, for, you know, unsafe, unsafe gun handling for unsafe attitudes, um, for bringing guns into places where they're just, uh, don't reasonably seem to make sense. Mm -hmm. These types of things. Like where? Well, so I've, I've noticed a lot, uh, or a fair amount of, of discourse and sort of debate about gun ownership, um, among unhoused people and in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in encampments and places like that, where most folks who are living on the street or living in tents or something aren't going to be able to have a safe in their tent or with them as they're moving around the world. They're not going to have a lockbox or something heavy like that. So is it responsible to have a gun in a situation like that? Even, you know, we know that situations like that put people at more risk for violent crime and, and for being mm-hmm. victimized. But is having a gun something that's actually feasible and safe in that context? This, that's the type of question that I that I see discussed a lot in these spaces that doesn't, I don't think, come up to the same extent in in other areas of gun culture or sort of the, the more right-leaning mm-hmm. gun discourses out there. So yeah, discussions about whether or not it's it's actually always a good idea or always safe or reasonable to to have guns in certain contexts, conversations about the 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 logic and the suitability or, or appropriateness of, of open carrying in various public contexts. These are things that I think receive a lot more attention mm-hmm. and debate in our area of the gun world than in others. Not that everybody's always on the same page or always agrees, but that there's discourse and debate about these things, I think is is telling. And it seems like, yeah. you know, I've, I mean, I've seen queer online celebrities uh, in the sort of online gun world get, you know, criticized or, or canceled for doing dumb shit with guns um, on Instagram or whatever, just being unsafe and not sort of upholding what this community has decided its values around gun safety are. That said, I mean, it's, it is becoming more common in centrist and, and right-wing gun discourse to, to talk about certain things like mental illness. We see more and more mm-hmm. programs like Hold My Guns um, at, you know, mainstream right-wing gun shops and stuff where people are able to store their guns for free if they're in a dangerous situation. Um, so that's it's not entirely absent, but I think it's something that we embrace and sort of emphasize more. Uh, it's not just mm-hmm. this thing that that's never that's available but not mentioned or, or that's sort of you know stigmatized. Uh, it's understood that this is part of part of our lives. You know, as queer people tend to be very open about mental health, open about issues of, of safety and comfort, uh, stuff that we talk about all the time in various contexts. And so adding that, you know, adding the sort of gun safety dimension to that is not difficult or, or uncomfortable for us as it is for some other yeah. folks. To talk about some of the specific practices, I'm glad if gun stores are starting to do that because one of the one of the complicating factors in any kind of, I've probably said this on the show before, but in general, I believe a thing that communities should consider adopting, and I've been part of communities that adopt this, is that if you get broken up with, it doesn't matter whether or not you personally think your mental health is doing just fine, right? But at that point, your risk model has changed f- to self-harm is more is a, a higher threat than external harm in most situations. So like I've been in parts of communities where it's like, it's not a question. So you're no longer analyzing, oh, how am I feeling today? Should I give up my guns today? But instead it's just like, no, if you get dumped or you go through a bad breakup or, you know, a bunch of other different types of things, like, you know, one of your friends will come and since the transfer of firearms is very complicated legally, Mm -hmm. usually take the bolt out of any kind of rifle or take the, um, the barrel out of any kind of handgun and just hold on to them until, you know, a little bit of time has passed and you can start having conversations. And I've been really proud to be part of communities that do that. And I, I don't know. I, that's one that I like. I'm wondering, yeah. I'm curious if there's examples of things that you've been around or things that you've seen of work that are very like concrete. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, such a good example. I mean, I, you know, I'm, a firearms instructor and, and make a big deal about the importance of being armed. But, you know, I went through a thing a couple of months ago and I gave a friend of mine the keys to my gun safe um, for several weeks. So mm-hmm. I think that it's great to have norms and to have that as sort of like an accepted thing that we do. 
other sort of concrete stuff, I think like, as I was kind of hinting at earlier, one concrete practice that I see in leftist and, and queer gun communities is, is the willingness to just shame people with a pretty low bar for shaming for, for any sort of perceived unsafe practices. And beyond that, you know, we, I've been part of conversations about, you know, whether it's uh, appropriate or acceptable to, you know, have a, have an occasion where we're drinking and shooting guns because drinking is fun and shooting guns is fun. So we can do these things together. And that's something that, that has Mm -hmm. been sort of an idea that's been shut down pretty quickly. Obviously this is not a universal universally agreed upon concept that you shouldn't shoot while you're drunk, but it's something that, that I see a lot of people um, talk about and agree with. I, I think you shouldn't shoot while drunk. I'm I'm just going to go on the record here. In my professional capacity, I I highly endorse that position. Also, you know, I see folks who do, you know, instructional content online, stuff like that, really emphasizing pretty mundane safety concerns around stuff like dry fire practice. You know, we have the uh, make a big deal out of rules. Like if you're going to do dry fire practice, which everyone should be doing every day, by the way, you have all live ammunition in a completely different room of your house. Um, you just have no proximity between ammunition and firearms when you're not trying to have loaded guns for a particular reason. So there's that sort of thing. And it's, I guess like what I mean by, by that is if we, if we look at all of this sort of online gun content, that's, that's created by leftists and, and queer leftists, I rarely see the importance of dry fire practice mentioned without also in the same breath uh, mentioning, make sure there's no live ammo here. So things like that, there's sort of constant emphasizing of safety at every different sort of stage or, or, or aspect um, of gun ownership is definitely a thing. Okay. Well, beyond gun safety, right? Mm-hmm. A gun safety is like kind of one element of it. But I think that some of the negative feedback I've heard, and and honestly, some that I share about the gun culture that we're building or things that we could be doing better. One of them for me is that I, I, I see, and I'm curious your thought about this, like a balance between people starting to go kind of macho and then people kind of trying to rein that in. And I don't necessarily mean macho in a like masculine way. It's a very complicated word, but you know, this idea of like, hmm, I think that sometimes people get excited around the concepts of conflict and they get excited by having the means to deadly force on their person. And personally, and I, you know, say this as someone who's, you know, roughly 40 or whatever, it's it's easier for me to say in some ways. uh, I think that that is a, a, a terrible, a grave mistake. I think that Carrying is this very serious and weighty thing that changes the way that you interact with space. It changes the way you interact with people, both um, strangers and your friends, and it should be felt as a burden in the same way that any like heavy responsibility should be felt as a burden. Uh, if I am carrying, I have accepted the responsibility of staying sober. I have accepted the responsibility of defending other people. I've also accepted the responsibility of like not being able to talk shit, which is like really frustrating. I, this is kind of a tangent, but like one of the have one of the most annoying things for me about um, caring is that uh, you just got to let shit go, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and sometimes that's not how you want to be. But I I worry about an excitement around guns turning into an excitement around conflict um, rather than being prepared for conflict. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. This is me sticking a question mark at the end of my own statement. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that the way you've just sort of talked about the, the weightiness of carrying and carrying a gun as a responsibility, I really see those same ideas uh, very prominent in the discourse. Um, Basically, mm-hmm. like I would say that most people I talk to explicitly about, you know, gun, about carrying guns and about self and community defense have said similar things to me. And I've also, I've heard from a number of, of, of radical gun owners, you know, not just that sentiment that you've expressed, but also this, and I don't know how, you know, 
valid and true it is, but this idea that, well, the other folks, you know, folks on the right, conservative gun owners, they don't have this mindset of responsibility and of avoiding conflict. In fact, you'll often, um, you'll often sort of see or, or perceive this, this eagerness for conflict. Um, you can go into right-wing forums and hear people talking about how excited they are to, to, to have an opportunity to be a good guy with a gun, uh, to, to use that. Mm -hmm. That's an idea that a lot of uh, folks on the left have expressed to me in these conversations, like, and I, I have never sort of tried to do a, a quantitative study of whether or not that that's the case, but I certainly see, even if there's not this eagerness for armed conflict um, among the people we envision as our opponents or as, or as our threats, there is this ingrained and, and very vocal idea in queer and leftist gun culture that eagerness for conflict is is wrong, that you know we're not mm-hmm. carrying because we want to find an opportunity to use these things. We're carrying with the steadfast hope that we never will and that and the sort of commitment to minimizing occasions for having to use these tools of force. And I think, you know, I, I see a lot of folks, you know, talking about all of the other things that one has to know how to do if one's going to carry a gun. And this is something that I talk about when I'm Mm -hmm. teaching as well. Uh, You know, if you're going to carry a gun, you had better also be carrying something less lethal you would also better be confident in your skills to at least try to de-escalate a situation and to try to escape a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way, the way that I sort of think about it and that I, I see a lot of other people talk about it is, you know, the f- first best option if you're in a threatening situation is to leave it. And if or only when you cannot escape that situation, you should be prepared to fight. And if you're going to be prepared to fight, you need to be prepared to win. And that's particularly important when other people are involved. We're talking about a sort of community defense situation rather than than a individual personal defense situation. It's not about courting violence, but it's about you know understanding that when you are at that last recourse, that you're act that you have that recourse and you're prepared to use it. Um, but mm-hmm. I do see this this idea emphasized pretty frequently and, and pretty prominently in in the discourse that you know that we have this responsibility to know how to avoid, to know how to um, minimize or deescalate conflict and that we cannot ever sort of go around looking for it. Yeah. Whether or not that really ends up being the case in practice is a little bit harder to say. I mean, you know, we're seeing a lot more um, leftists and queers bringing arms to public demos and protests and stuff like that, that's not a bad thing because a lot of the time the people who are threatening these public events and demos or, or whatever are, are doing so with arms. And I think, as I said earlier, like armed deterrence is crucial for our community. So I'm not opposed to people making a, a show yeah. of, of arms in public, but we have to make sure. And, you know, I can't sort of say without a lot more data that when we're doing that, we're not doing it provocatively. And there's sort of, yeah. you know, I I have seen, I've seen in some contexts, some discourse around defending, for instance, there in certain parts of the country, there have been a lot of attacks or threats against drag queen story hours or other sort of queer events in various places and, and armed defensive operations to protect those events. Um, when we're doing that, are the people who are showing up to defend or who are talking online about those defensive actions, are they talking shit? Are they, you know, flaunting this uh, ability to use armed mm-hmm. force? Are they sort of going out and, and thumping their chest at the, at the adversary or the imagined adversary? If they are, that's highly problematic. And I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. I think sometimes it does. I do think that, that our discourses tend to stress the the responsibility and the, and the, nece- the necessity of avoiding that. But I don't know that it actually happens less frequently than um, with other, you know, with with folks on yeah. the right. Um, I hope to, that it does, but yeah, I mean, I think that's why I was wanted to frame it at the beginning. It's like talking about minimizing yeah. the problems that are going to be involved when you introduce guns, because I think it's 
on some level impossible to introduce firearms into a situation and not have people feel some people feel some level of excitement around that right mm-hmm. and and i don't think that's inherently wrong i think it's just something that we need to be like really cognizant of and i do wonder you know this idea that the right wing you know is chomping at the bit champing at the bit whatever you know in order to to cause violence or whatever i suspect that it's at a higher rate but i also suspect the sort of center right or the more like just excited about guns and just excited about com- well they probably wouldn't phrase it community defense but just excited about like the concept of being a you know protective person or self defense or whatever you know when i personally interact in a gun space with someone who probably isn't ideologically aligned with me they take that weight very seriously but as compared to i don't i probably don't interact with the far right you know on purpose ever and so it's it's hard to know but i i think that another thing that i worry about especially in a situation it's basically it's like everything is a lot more serious when there's a fucking gun on the table for sure you know I worry about anything that we do to dehumanize our enemies while still recognizing that there are, I mean, there are enemies. There's an increasing section of the U.S. population that would like to see me dead, um, that believes I am a like crime against the Bible or something for existing, you know? And I seek to be prepared for those people coming to power, those people individually trying to harm me or my community. But I worry about a lot of rhetoric that I think the left used before everything was armed probably can't really keep going now that everyone is armed around this kind of like, oh, well, fuck all of these people who are outside my own ideological framework or whatever. I think we have to be like way more specific about who I'm trying to be really careful about my words here because I can kind of see both sides of the same of the thing that I'm saying here. But I think we have to be really careful about who we declare an enemy, you know? I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I and it is definitely there are definitely tendencies on the left to to adopt a kind of, you know, if you're if you're not with us, you're against us mindset toward society at large and and toward you know the political realm, especially. You know, we often as leftists uh, and as as queer people, you know, talk shit about liberals and talk mm-hmm. shit about centrists. I mean, this idea that literally everybody out there wants to hurt us and is part of the problem. Yeah, it does. That can certainly translate into sort of a not just a a factionalization or a hardening of of social identities, but but to a dehumanization. I think I think it's absolutely right to to call out that risk. One thing that 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 sort of made me think of, though, it's it's kind of a separate, it's a distinct issue, but I think it's relevant in some ways. Is whether or not we dehumanize the people who are on quote unquote our side as well, and I think one really important difference between uh between radical gun culture and both centrist and sort of state friendly gun culture and far right gun culture is whether or not armed people are distinguished from everybody else and i think you know one of the most common ah. catchphrases in 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 leftist politics and and street organizing and and direct action all sorts of stuff is is you know we keep us safe and that's a phrase that mm-hmm. actually really encapsulates an important concept that it's not about carrying a gun for most of us, I think is not about being that good guy with a gun. Like, yes, you're equipping yourself to be able to use yeah. armed defense, but you are not separating yourself from the people you're defending. Um, whereas I think on the right and in traditional or, or sort of mainstream hegemonic gun culture, there is this distinction. It's, you know, one takes on the role of the protector of the family of women mm-hmm. folk of whatever of, of people who who aren't able to or capable of protecting themselves and thus sort of separates themselves from the rest of of the group from from society whereas i think that or i see that on the left there's any sort of distinction uh between 
you know, armed protectors and everybody else is frowned upon is often, um, countered sharply rhetorically. And, um, yeah. And the ideal instead is that we, all of us collectively participate in our own defense and in our mutual defense. And if we do, do so with arms, that doesn't sort of make us different. It doesn't put us in a different cast than everyone else who isn't armed. It's just sort of that's our the capacity that we're able to take on. It's what we choose. And, and we all have different roles to play in defending the collective. Some people do that through arms, yeah. but, but they're not sort of, you know, the assigned defenders. And this comes up a lot in street action contexts where, you know, you have people, mm-hmm. you know, throughout 20, 2020, we saw folks doing protest defense and stuff like that. And there was often a lot of debate or argument about, you know, the the concept of, of people providing security or people sort of taking on the role of, of, a, of being a part of a security team. Um, and that's been heavily criticized in a lot of quarters. And it's like the idea of, of sort of separating yourself out like that, it just makes you a, makes you a leftist cop. It doesn't make you, it takes you out of the collective. Yeah. So that's a, that's an aspect that I think is extremely valuable in our gun culture. And both things are related to the same thing about how guns escalate problems of power and authority, mm-hmm. right? And so we have to be more on top of our shit in terms of avoiding any sort of authoritarianism, avoiding any sort of, yeah, leftist cops or whatever. No, it's such a I remember the first time I heard about this uh, sheepdog concept, mm-hmm. I was I was doing I was sitting by the side of the road at a forest defense camp like 20 years ago in a land far, far away. And a cop drives by and I, you know, radio it in and he's like, Hey, you're on channel four, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I was like, Hey, I got a question for you. And he's like, what? And I was like, why did you decide to become a cop? It's like the most hated job in the world. Like, why would you do that? Which I do not advocate this as a way to interact (laughs) with police. Um, but it is what I chose to do. And, and he was like, well, that's not the way I see it. And I was like, well, how do you see it? And he's like, there's three kinds of people in this world. There's, there's wolves and there's sheep. And I was like, okay, but that's that's two kinds of people. And he was like, and then there's me. I'm a sheepdog. And I thought about it for a minute, and I was like, are you calling me a wolf? <laughs> and then he like kind of couldn't justify that because I was literally just some fucking hippie punk by the side of the road and trying to stop some logging. And so he like rolled up his window and drove away. <laughs> and and it was the first time I heard of this concept that's very common in police circles, and then I. I don't know if it's common in right-wing militia circles, but it's common in a lot of like right-wing gun culture, at least center-right gun culture. This idea that the world is sheep and wolves and you are the sheepdog, the other dangerous creature, you know, the good guy with the gun. And it's always rubbed me the wrong way. And you articulated it better than that. I just want to tell a story about yelling at a cop, which I should, no one should do. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, that's, that's sort of, you know, I see a lot more, calling out of that kind of mindset than I see a repetition of that kind of mindset in, in leftist gun culture. Yeah. No, this is actually very exciting because I, I am not deeply involved in why well, I live alone on a mountain. Um, and so hearing you talk about the way that these things are developing and stuff feels very optimistic to me, not in a like blind optimism way, just like literally a like, it seems like these are the conversations that are happening and that need to keep happening. I'm wondering if there are other, you know, weaknesses that we need to shore up or like things that you think that we should be doing better or things that you're really proud of that we do. I mean, I guess you've talked about some of the things that we should be proud of that we take these things into consideration, but yeah. And maybe I'll start with another one of those sort of yay for us uh, angles, which is that, you know, Gun ownership and and uh, the you know capacity or skill for armed defense in queer and leftist gun culture is has been strongly or been pretty decisively detached from any version of masculinity that exists in our world. Mm-hmm. And what we see a lot of is is sort of celebrations of or acknowledgments of this link between both queerness broadly and queer femininity and guns there's been a lot of sort of Mm -hmm. i see a lot of 
reclaiming of of sexuality of links between sexuality or sexual expression and gun ownership but done in ways that are extremely positive and empowering and self-determined rather than sort of uh, ex- rather than based on an external male gaze but based on the sort of like no I am a sexy queer femme and I'm going to pose naked with my rifle because I fucking feel like it. There's a lot of that, you know, mm-hmm. very conscious and overt queering and regendering and resexualizing of guns and of, of, of competence, um, you know, of gun skill uh, that goes on in this discourse in these communities, which I, I think is really cool and really healthy things that, that were, that we're not great at it or that we need to be careful of. I think that, you know, that sort of sheepdog concept that, that we were just talking about, it's one, it's, that's an ever present threat. And it's something that's going to wax and wane based on context. When we had, you know, mm-hmm. in 2020, when we had shit going on in the street all the time and so many more people getting armed and so many people both participating in street protests and direct actions and people engaged in defense of those actions, the more of that we saw, the more slippage there was in this sort of, you know, dedication mm-hmm. to a, a, a pure and unadulterated, you know, collectivity and, and um, non-differentiation of protectors and protected. Uh, so that's always going to be a significant pitfall when things get hotter and when things get more active and, and, and arms are needed more prominently and more frequently. It's something that's always it's a battle that always has to be, to be fought both sort of in one's own psyche and in the community. That one's not going to go away. I also sort of, I wonder about the, I mean, I I think I've sort of talked about regendering and I think that that's happening in, in a way that, that makes a lot of sense and that it's very positive as I said, but, there are also pockets of leftist gun world where armed defense is mostly being done by white cis men or even God forbid straight men. And um, there does seem to be this sort of not necessarily a, a conscious or deliberate division of labor, but you know, in this society, boys grow up playing with guns and men are still more likely to own guns and be comfortable around guns than women are. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it may be the case. It may, it may be the case. In fact, that the reverse is true among trans people for that obvious reason of socialization, but either way, Mm -hmm. those gender divisions still do exist and it has to be a conscious and deliberate process of undoing them Otherwise, they're going to to just stay there. So assuming that, you know, that queers are going to automatically queer gun culture is mm-hmm. really simplistic. We won't. We have to really want to. And we have to be always trying to complicate and queer and question gun ownership and everything about owning and using guns and not just assume that we're going to do it better than they do because we're better people because we're more evolved people because we're, you know, leftists and and, um, we don't want to hurt people. So there is that for sure. I think also, you know, I mean, I guess the sort of biggest pitfalls are are, are the ones we've already talked about that one. And then also the, the problem of, of whether or not people are going to be seeking out or, or more likely to get into conflict other than that, I mean, one thing that is always going to be an issue with guns is access uh, and particularly access in terms of affordability, uh, monetary access. Like mm-hmm. it's still the case that that guns cost a lot of money and certain of us are going to be more able to buy them than others. And certain of us are going to be, you know, more likely to prioritize that in our budgets than other people. And I think that working a lot more to bring access to guns and to defensive skills in line with our leftist sensibilities and values is really important. It's not enough to just, you know, want everybody on the left to get armed. What are we doing to make sure that people who can't afford a gun still get one and know how to, and are trained in using it. People who can't afford to take classes are able to do that. 
uh, we have to be taking really deliberate and conscious steps and building a sort of infrastructure in order for that to happen. Yeah. And we still don't see anything, you know, like large scale efforts to manufacture and distribute guns among queers and leftists, which is totally feasible. It's something that can be done, but we're not doing it. And it's still, you know, it still costs a lot of money to do something like take my basic pistol class and we can sort of put aside free seats or have sliding scales for stuff like that. But if we're not actively doing that, then we're, we're not making things more accessible for everybody. We're still sort of following the same lines of, of access and division and distinction that already exist. So that, you know, yeah, so that, that's a big one to me. Well, it's interesting because one of the things you brought up earlier about how in some ways within a queer gun culture, trans femmes probably have like, it's possible that we are, are the more armed contingent or whatever. And, you know, and I think that, you know, the point you brought up about like growing up playing with guns and, and things like that, and just like the, the socialization we receive based on, you know, the sex we've been assigned at birth or whatever seems to play a big part in it. And it also, I, I think it does position us in this, uh, in this way to be good at bringing these skills into femme spaces. And maybe that's like a little bit too, I don't know. It's the kind of conversation. It's like sometimes hard to have because I think people have a lot of, for very good reason, have very intense feelings about, you know, what it means to be trans feminine, what socialization looks like, all of these different things. But I have found that not universally, whatever, I'll just, my Twitter brain is on, so I keep thinking about everything I'm saying and how it could possibly be considered wrong. But I have had experiences where I often learn better from women and other women I know often learn better from women. And so I have been able to use that in positive ways as a woman teaching other women or as a someone who isn't a cis man teaching other people who aren't cis men. And I think that is something that you know, we can really break down. And a lot of my friends who are, you know, cis men or, you know, straight cis men or whatever, you know, are wondering how to put their skills that they've carefully cultivated to use in, in training and stuff like that. And I think that that is very useful and very important. But I, I personally would say, and you might have, you've probably done more thinking about this, teaching trainers, you know, teaching other people who can then go out and be trainers rather than necessarily being the end the person who teaches um, all of the students is a good way to then actually distribute power and break down a lot of siloing of information. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, that's a a really good point. Um, And just generally speaking, anytime we can take whatever privilege we find and distribute it and thus undo it is always a positive thing. But I think you're right. I mean, I definitely, throughout my life, always avoided whenever possible male teachers and male instructors or male authority figures at all in preference for female ones. And that, you know, still remains the case. Um, And I think that that is, that's pretty common for sure. So it's, it is important. We need to be conscious of that. and, And I think, you know, making sure that, that men with particular skills don't just sort of automatically appoint themselves as the, as the, the teachers of these skills um, is, is a great point. Yeah. So I've, I've one final question and it's, it's like many of my questions today, not incredibly well formed, but we talked earlier about self-harm and how communities need to, you know, stay aware of everyone's kind of risk model and, and things like that as it relates to self-harm. But there's also intimate partner violence. And one of the things, one of the pushbacks I've gotten from, you know, a a queer anarchist friend of mine who had a conversation with this about recently is sort of part of the mourning of the arming of the left is even while accepting on some level the necessity of it based on what's happening in the world and what's, you know, the increased likelihood and increased presence of the need not just for self-defense, but community defense, um, is that, well, basically that it um, statistically, historically makes uh, a lot of people less safe uh, in terms of intimate partner partner violence. And specifically, like, I I should have looked up the studies before I started recording, but I've 
you know, I've I've read some articles about some studies that talk about how uh, a cis woman who lives with a man with a gun is just less safe on a like statistical level. And it opens up a lot of questions. Um, and one of the questions for me is how does a community decide, you know, ha- ha- decide who has guns at any given moment? You know, how does, how do we minimize the danger of not just self-harm, but of like, you know, people getting mad about some bullshit? Yeah. Um, that is such a tough question. I think that, you know, yeah, I saved the easy one for the end. <laughs> I I mean, and I guess, you know, I'll admit, first of all, that, you know, this is not an area that I particularly specialize in is sort of thinking about domestic partner violence and intimate violence, but it's something that matters a great deal. Obviously, I think that clearly having guns in the house, as you say, is, is going to make people less safe who are, who are in abusive relationships or, or violent relationships. But I do think, you know, again, it's not going to be blind optimism at all, but we do think a lot more in queer communities and in leftist communities uh, about all of the ways that people need to be able to access safety and able to escape dangerous situations. Um, and, mm-hmm. and also the ways that, you know, danger and, and sort of harm in, in the domestic environment hide from, from public view and, and from the community. Mm-hmm. We think about these things more than other folks that doesn't immunize us to these dangers, obviously. And I don't know how to really, ensure that uh, or I don't know how to minimize this threat effectively other than to probably I think normalize and, and really spread the idea that what's going on in each other's relationships and homes uh, and families mm-hmm. actually is the business of the community and I think that that's you know that opposes uh a lot of a lot of thinking that you know exists in mainstream society and especially in like sort of nuclear family based society um, wherein the the house and the household is is sovereign and sacred I think that leftists in particular and queers in particular because we have different understandings of what society is supposed to be and we particularly queers have different understandings of what family is supposed to be and, and can be mm-hmm there's a better, we have an opportunity to, to sort of establish norms of maybe one way to think about it is domestic transparency. You know, it's not just my business, how I treat my spouse or my partner uh, or my kids. It is in fact mm-hmm. um, the business of my comrades and my community, the business of, you know, my buddy on the community defense team, my, you know, my friends and sort of comrades at the mutual aid project or whatever, it's all of our business, whether or not I'm in abusive situation, whether or not I'm an abuser, whether or not, you know, somebody in my life is dangerous to me or is at risk. Um, I guess making these things our business and, and normalizing some level of, of, of that transparency in that, in the household and, and sort of making more porous those boundaries of domesticity and of, Relation, intimate relationships may be part of the solution here or part of the way that we mitigate that danger more effectively than society has done thus far. No, that that makes a lot of sense. It does feel like almost every time there's a problem, the answer is community. You know, and it, it keeps coming. It's a recurring theme on this show and not even necessarily on purpose, you know, just as you think through various types of problems. I do think that there's something that I wish... Well, I'm opinionated about it, which doesn't make me right. But um, I've seen some discourse around, and I've not been totally pleased by what I've seen personally, which is that like around consent and guns, um, around the idea that like like if 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 I'm going to have someone over to my house, I want them to know 
the situation mm-hmm. of the guns in the house. And I want them to have a say in that, you know? There's like a, would is it okay if someone brings a gun, a date, a gun on a right. date discourse, right? That I've, I've seen a bit of. And like, you know, there's sort of a, it's nobody's business if I'm carrying. Um, and I, I don't believe that. I believe that it would be a perfectly reasonable position to be like, I'm going on a date with someone and I don't know them very well. I don't want them to have a gun on them. I think that that is a a reasonable thing that someone could want or a thing that might be worth clearing with people, you know, if that is like a thing you do regularly for a lot of reasons. And, you know, a lot of people need guns to be unavailable in certain ways for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. I don't know. I, that's really more of a, I keep doing this statement instead of question thing in this conversation. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, super, I, I'm super glad that you brought that up. I think that's really important. And I've sort of, since I started carrying, I have myself made that a practice. Essentially, I, I don't carry a gun on a first date. And thus far, it's been my practice to yeah. make it a second date conversation. Um, hey, I sometimes carry a pistol. Yeah. Does that make you uncomfortable? And if it does, like, that's okay. I don't always, I don't have to carry it when we're together. And so far, the people I've done that with have, have told me, no, I feel much more comfortable knowing that you're carrying. I like that. And I think that's good. So I think that is a conversation yeah. that, that really, it's definitely no harder or, or no more awkward to have than all of the other things we have to be talking about on first and second dates, like, you know, our, <laughs> our STI status and, and all of that yeah. sort of stuff. And, um, and yeah, being conscious of that, you know, for instance, are you going to see a friend who, who has kids living with them? Are you going on a date with somebody who has a family? Like, mm-hmm. uh, are there people involved in the situation who do not have the opportunity to consent to me being armed? And if so, I, it's probably best that I'm not until I can, you know, change that dynamic. I think that that's a great way to, to think about it is, is, is connecting it to that, uh, consent conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe that's a good note to end on unless you have additional things that you really feel like we should have covered or, um, no, I think I thought of something really brilliant um, a little while ago and then it went away. So I think I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy there. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. If people are interested in knowing more about you or your classes or any of the stuff that you do, is that something that you want people to know about? Yeah, for sure. Um, we, uh, my co-instructor and I have a, an active Instagram presence that people can check out. That's a somewhat clunky username, but if you're on Instagram, it's ATW as in armed trans women dot firearms dot INST. And uh, it's it's not a good handle, but it's the one we have. My own handle on Instagram is codename (laughs) underscore Ellie, and people can very easily connect to my all of my gun work uh, through that personal account as well. Um, In addition to some other cool stuff that I do, so yeah, cool. All right, well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode. Please tell people about it. Tell people about it in person. And you've heard me, if you've ever listened to this podcast, you've heard me make this spiel many times before. But tell the internet, tell your friends. Word of mouth is the main way that people know about this podcast. And so really appreciate any word of mouth that you feel like doing. You can also support this podcast more directly by supporting it financially, by supporting our publisher, which is Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, which is a super cool collective of anarchist publishing that does podcasts and zines and books and stuff, um, including our latest book, which is called Try Anarchism for Life by Cindy Milstein. Uh, that is really worth checking out. And that's at tangledwilderness.org. But if you want to support the podcast, you end up supporting the people who, at the moment, I don't take any money from hosting this. Um, I'm not opposed to it, but you know, we don't make enough just yet. Because more importantly, uh, the transcriptionist and the audio editor and the producer, some of which overlap, other people who work on this podcast get paid for their work. And I think that that's like a really fucking important thing um because it's a lot of work and so if you want to support us go to patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness 
And in particular, I would like to thank Papa Runa, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the Dog. Your contributions make this possible. And yeah, everyone else, well, and including the people I just mentioned, I hope you're doing well. And yeah, I don't know. And I hope everything is good and happy and good in the world, even when it's not. <laughs>